Maybe it's a combination, right? So Lafayette breaks his spell when he has a seventh love, which he gets. So that way out for the mermaid is gone. And then, of course, the disappointment. I guess she had invested in Sailor Twain. So when you invest in a relationship and it doesn't pan out, and sometimes it's just incredibly frustrating when everything that you had hoped and dreamed- And you turn into an angry sea monster and just start smashing things. Exactly. I mean, we've all been there. I'm glad we talked through that- Hey, Ryan, have you ever sailed up the mighty Hudson? I've taken the mighty Metro North. Well, what would you say if I told you there'd be mermaids in the mighty river that flows in two different directions? Well, first, I'd say let's catch one and grill it up because I've always wondered if a mermaid tastes more like a fish or more like a person. But I would also say that finding fictional sea creatures in the Hudson seems highly improbable because rivers are mostly freshwater. Ah, my friend, the first thing that comes to mind is... How would you have a basis to compare it to if it tastes like a person? But also, I would say that given its tidal nature, the mighty Hudson has water that is sometimes fresh and sometimes salty. (laughs) Well, I've always assumed that a person tastes like pork. Don't ask me why. And uh, fresh and sometimes salty? That sounds like our personalities, Roman. Or this podcast. Or this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Which reminds banished mermaids of that which they have lost frequently. Oh my gosh, what the hell are we talking about? Well, this week, we're reading Sailor Twain, or The Mermaid of the Hudson, by Mark Siegel, founder of First Second Press, one of my favorite semi-indie comics publishers. Semi-indie means being half-pregnant? Well, I guess. I mean, they were bought by Macmillan, which is a big publisher, so I I think they're doing something right. I don't know, man. Publishing industry, man. It's going great. You're saying they're not going to pick up this podcast. (laughs) So many of the books put out by First Second, though, are among my favorite indie comics. If there's one publisher, I think that can show the versatility of comics as a storytelling medium beyond superheroes. Consistently, it's First Second. They do genre fiction, history, biographies, personal memoirs, and even comics journalism from American Born Chinese to Lewis and Clark to Zeta the Space Girl. I am rarely disappointed by anything I read from them, and their books make great gifts to brainwash kids into comics. You sound like you're marketing, Raman. I am, but I genuinely love their stuff. And while First Second's been around since the early 2000s, Sailor Twain, which we're talking about today, came out in 2012. And as I mentioned, it was written and drawn by their founder, Mark Siegel. And this one is definitely not for the kids. I'm Roman Segel. And I'm Ryan Joe. And we're two dudes who may or may not believe in mermaids, and one of us wonders what they taste like. Well, what I am a big fan of, The Shape of Water, a.k.a. fucking Nemo. (laughs) So over a century ago on the foggy Hudson, our sailor Twain, a riverboat captain with his own problems, is just doing his job when he finds himself rescuing and becoming enamored by an injured mermaid. Toss in a fornicating French nobleman, a notoriously reclusive author, and a cast of weirdly wonderful window-dressing characters, it is an emotionally dark and mysterious story that's equal parts Poe, Hemingway, and world mythology, illustrated in a moody charcoal finish. The book just has this haunting atmosphere that pulled me in years ago and still haunts me to this day. Basically, this book is my attempt to pull a Ryan and weird out my co-host with some strange and disturbing comics. Challenge accepted. So Ryan, did this book move you or is your heart as cold as the depths of the mighty Hudson? So I really want to talk a little bit about the art of this book, actually, because it is incredibly atmospheric. And I, I really plunged me into this foggy, smoggy, 
world of steamboats drifting up and down the Hudson. It was really a, a beautiful book with all of these charcoal and ink washes. So it really pulled me into the atmosphere. And what worked best for me when I was reading Sailor Twain is the slow way that the mysteries started to become revealed. It seems like the book's going to be one thing, a man finds a mermaid and they're going to fall in love and it's going to be like Splash with Tom Hanks and Daryl Hannah. And then it takes like a much darker turn. And then the relationships between everyone becomes so much more twisted than what you expect. And so I was really pulled along, both, again, because of the the really atmospheric feel of this book, as well as the, I just really wanted to know what the hell was going on in this world. Yeah. And even reading it the second and third time, like I constantly had the what the hell is going on because the comic relief and I'm the, the the French guy who owns the boat, you think he's comic relief. He's just like lustfully seducing women on the boat. And you find out later that's about something else. The the sailor, uh, Sailor Twain, the main character, the protagonist, he's got this beautiful mermaid, but he's got this sick wife. And he's haunted by his dreams and his past and his brother. And to your point, I just didn't know what to expect half the time. I just didn't know what to expect half the time, even though I'd read this before. And there's very circuitous paths. It wasn't linear necessarily half the time. And I just like being lost. Normally, I don't. I want a straightforward plot. I want relatable characters. And I'm not digging at the book. This didn't have those. And I couldn't tear myself away. Yeah, one of the things that really surprised me, it's caused a reversal of Sailor Twain and Lafayette because Lafayette almost seems like a the side character, almost maybe comic relief initially because of all his dalliances with all of these women. He's Lando um, Calrissian. Yeah, and he's actually the main character because it's his action that really drives a lot of the conflict that happens in Sailor Twain. And it's his motivation that's really driving towards the conclusion. And then Sailor Twain, he's the title character. It seems initially like he is going to be the main character, but he's actually really more of a side character slash almost like a henchman towards the end. And I I thought that reversal was really interesting and unexpected for me. It also worked against the book, which we can talk about more, but that positioning of the two characters, one the main character, one like the supporting character, and then switching it maybe about three quarters of the way through was really surprising to me. Yeah, and I I think... I would assume that's intentional. And what's interesting is it was a unique device to pull you in because I said earlier the characters weren't relatable, but to a degree, Sailor Twain is the everyman. He's whose eyes you're supposed to be seeing this crazy world through, experiencing these things for the first time, not being in the know of everything. But he's looking from the outside in to this much bigger, much deeper plot that was already afoot by Lafayette and many others around him. Can we can we talk really briefly about the way Sailor Twain is drawn? Because that was interesting to me because he's drawn like really simply, really crudely. I mean, his eyes are literally two circles. His nose is literally a diamond. And we see in other places in this book, areas where the art, the faces, the poses of people gets a lot more complex and sophisticated. Yet Mark Siegel has made the decision to draw Sailor Twain in the simplest fashion possible. Honestly, almost like a five-year-old might draw a person. And I was just wanted to get your point of view on like why he might have made that decision, because it created a really interesting aesthetic. Well, it's not the only character that is drawn overly simplistic. The two boys on the boat, the main lieutenant who has like this weird cartoony round face. But you know, to your point about Sailor Twain, 
he has a very nondescript look. The only thing yeah. that really speaks are his eyes and his mouth to you when he gives these sideward glances. But I think that's by design. By yeah, because the simpler he is, the more you can project yourself into him. Yeah, he's visually yeah. That's actually a good way of describing it. Visually, he is the most boring character because you're right. Like Lafayette. Uh, is drunk in this cartoony fashion, but very distinctly. He's got this big Pinocchio-like nose. He's got. This I don't, kind but of I, I can never see face. myself as Lafayette, right? I can never see myself as these other more contrasting characters. Yeah, he's a very distinct character, both in terms of personality, in terms of his motivations, and in terms of his look. Versus Sailor Twain, you're right. He really doesn't have much of a personality other than he falls in love with this mermaid. And actually, I, yeah. So, so c- can we? talk about that too because I, I felt that was intentional but I also had trouble with it because it kept me at a distance from his own personal conflict because it didn't seem like he really had much and because we're following him around through the duration of the book so that was why I had trouble with it on the other hand seeing all of this through his eyes not knowing anything like this blank slate it helped to the mysteries really take center stage and unfold. So we were really much more involved in everybody else's story around Sailor Twain. I don't know. So obviously I'm conflicted about that decision. Like it works sometimes, but sometimes I'm like, ah, I don't know about this. But again, I, one, I would argue a little bit. I think there is a little bit of complexity that's not fully fleshed out about him. But at the end of the day, I'm okay with the simplicity of Sailor Twain, the character, because he's a vehicle. If this book is VR, if it's trying to pull you into it, you're seeing the whole book from his perspective through his eyes. Very rarely do things happen in the book that are not seen through his eyes. Occasionally you zoom out from the boats. Occasionally there's a flashback to something that happened, but it is Sailor Twain reading about it. So yeah, I think that, no, you're, you're spot on there. I mean, he is a vehicle. And I, I think where it worked best is where seeing all of these weird things happening, like for instance, in his bedroom, where all of the, where it starts to decay and starts to look like this underwater world. And we're seeing this through Sailor Twain's perspective. And it is so weird and odd and hypnotic. Or when he goes under the ocean to track down the mermaid. And we're in this underwater city full of ghosts. I mean, that is also like a really, really cool scene. You know what this felt like? They were great. It didn't occur to me until we just started talking about uh, Sailor Twin, the character being a vehicle. It's like an RPG. I don't know if you ever played like the text-based Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy video game back in the day, right? Where you had to type in commands and it was like a choose-your-own-adventure thing. But again, you're experiencing the world through this guy's eyes who can barely make sense of all the things. I mean, he understands the mechanics of the world, the mechanics of his job, the mechanics of his wife, but he doesn't understand people's motivations. He doesn't understand the fantasy of the mermaid and the rules of this new world that's emerging. And it's like an RPG video game. And and that's, I, I don't mean that to be diminishing to the book, but would I love this to be a six episode Netflix series like that's animated? Yes. But I, I could see this being like a Steam video game. And just yeah. really like tripping me out. Yeah. So the areas where I had trouble with that with that concept with Sailor Twin as a vehicle is one when he's relating to his wife. Yeah. Because that's where you almost need to get more information about their relationship, where he needs to be more than just like a two dimensional character, which he is intentionally for the most part. And then the second area where I really had trouble with Sailor Twain's two dimensionality is at the end when he splits. And he and, and Sailor Twain takes a much more direct role 
in the action. He literally splits into two. Yeah, he literally His soul splits. Is sort of like, thunder. Yeah, there's a he's, there's a soul air version and there's a physical bodily version, and so there's this conflict that's driving him. Whereas it's actually interesting because on the one hand, there's this version of Sailor Twain that is doing the mermaid's bidding as her henchman, and then there's the other version of Sailor Twain that is trying to protect Lafayette, and so it's like this internal conflict made flesh. You know what the division is? The division is the head and the heart. The heart wants to follow the love of the mermaid. The head knows the rational things he needs to do to keep the mortal world afloat. That's a a cool way of thinking about that. But it's completely wrong. (laughs) No, I actually, I've only read this once. You read it like two or three times. And I totally buy that interpretation. But where, where I take issue is that... That conclusion of Sailor Twain, especially and then the ultimate conclusion where he's this disgruntled, obsessed guy in a bar, it almost begs to have more of his character, more of his internal conflicts established beforehand so that when he finally does split in two, we see those conflicts beforehand finally personified into this ghoulish entity. And because we don't have that, it's almost like a very almost abrupt and so almost very plot driven, it felt like, rather than driven by anything that Sailor Twain was going through emotionally or spiritually beforehand. I'll, uh, I'll push back a little bit, but I agree that it becomes more plot driven towards the end, whereas hmm. the first two thirds of the book, and again, this is a compliment, it's meandering. And I like that because I'm getting lost in the world. And then you have to tidy everything up. But similar to our argument on the pulp episode, I don't need all the backstories. I just need a few glimpses of the motivations. And the few glimpses that are given, again, to this vehicle-like character are his father's disappointment with him, his brother sacrificing his life for him, his ongoing relationship with his wife, who he's leaving by the wayside, who's sick and he's writing letters to, but he's obsessed with his work and making money and getting lost in that. And so those are, and again, I've read this three times now, those are are enough for me to understand this man's motivations and how all of those things can lead to his head and his heart splitting in that moment where he finally does give in to the mermaid under the sea. Could you get into that a little bit more? Because I I hear what you're saying about they do give you a little bit of backstory around Sailor Twain. He wanted to be an artist. He decided to be a, a sailor. He's a disappointment to his father. And I acknowledge those you know, aspects of his history. I just didn't quite see how they played into his personality as it was. Once he, you well, know, to your and, point and, about the personality, it's the only glimpses of personality that you get from Sailor Twain, the character, is these flashbacks his interactions with his wife, and a couple of his decisions and sideways glances at the characters in the book, right? Be it Lafayette, be it the kids in the steam room, etc. So you really do have to infer his personality. And because he's drawn simply, he is the everyman, he is a vehicle, I think you have to inject your personality into it. Coming back to the RPG element. Yeah, yeah. How would you react in this situation if you probably have a complicated relationship with your parents? You probably have a complicated relationship with your siblings or some trauma in your past. You probably have some love issues, be it current or past. And by seeing those flashbacks of your backstory, you, the reader's backstory, who because you are he, then, and again, I've read this three times. I'm a little biased. So like when I saw those the second and third time, which I was dismissive of the first time, I was like, yeah, 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 get back to the plot, get back to the plot. I want to know what's going on with the mermaid. Sure, sure, sure. His dad doesn't love him. But reading it through that lens, I could see it building. Hmm. And maybe it could have done a better job building harder. 
you know, that's interesting. Yeah. Cause I, yeah. Cause actually, you know, cause this was my first time reading it. So I went into this not real, literally not knowing what to expect from anybody. And including how Sailor Twain is going to be characterized. So I am curious. I read it again, knowing, okay, he's a vehicle for the reader, but you're going to get little aspects of his history. How would that change the way I read Sailor Twain? I mean, I got, I get the impression that it changed the way you read it. Like, like when you first read, read it, how did you react to Sailor Twain? And then your second, third time? Yeah, yeah. it's funny. The first time I read it was an accidental discovery at the library. The library in the town I used to live in, in Terrytown on the Hudson River, right? This was a featured book because it's about the Hudson River Valley, right? And so I grabbed it. I was like, oh, a comic book that is not superheroes. And I read it and it was haunting and it was weird and I didn't fully get it. And there's this pretty mermaid and all these things. I was like, that's pretty good. I liked it enough. And it, it moved me a little, but not a lot to be very clear. And then fast forward a few years later, my wife literally saw And I had picked up a bunch of other first, second books, I think, by that point. My wife was like, hey, this guy, he's speaking at the library. And she didn't know that it was a first, second. It was like, this guy who makes comics is speaking. I was like, oh, my God, that's the guy who who did that book about the mermaid. And he does a bunch of other stuff, right? So I went to this event (laughs) at night. My wife took care of our daughter. And I walked to the library. And I went to this event. And it was full of kids because Mark Siegel was promoting this other, more kid-friendly series that he's doing. But I wanted to see the guy speak. And he gave the same talk he gave at Comic-Con. And afterwards, I wanted to support the guy. And so I went up to the table and I bought a copy of Sailor Twain, not the kid-friendly book that he was selling. And I get in line. I'm like the only adult there without a child. (laughs) And I get in line to to meet him. And I I hand him the book. And he's like, you realize that book isn't for kids, right? And I was like, yeah, I know. I explained my story. We have a nice little chat. He draws the naked mermaid on the front cover. And I'm like, I can't show this around the room. I got to hide this. And so I read it that second time and paid a lot more attention to the plot because I was appreciative of this man who was working on these books. I read his other books, blah, blah, blah. And so I guess the first time I read it was a light reading. Yeah, I appreciate it for what it is. Not that critical. wasn't going to do a podcast. The second time was I wanted to have a deeper appreciation because I met the man. I saw him give his Comic-Con presentation. I He signed it for me, right? Like I felt ownership of it, a little more connected to it. And this third time around, I just felt more impacted. I was looking for details. It's like when you watch The Sixth Sense the third or the fourth time, yeah. and you're looking for those things. So I guess my my one criticism of it is, and comics, unfortunately, aren't the things people read over and over again. We're the weirdos here, Ryan. The first time, I was impressed enough, right? But the beauty of the styling of the book, the charcoal, haziness, et cetera, the meandering plot, and again, that's a compliment it just allowed me to get lost for two hours. And that's all you can ask for from, from media the first time you consume it. It was more different than anything I'd ever seen. And I think that's what brings me back to it over and over again. It's just, I don't see stuff like this that often. No, I, like I said, at its best, I mean, this book is completely hypnotic. And sometimes I'm just looking at page 182, 183, where the mermaid is swimming, but in his room on the ship. So it's all like this very dreamlike, eerie environment. And I found that incredibly propulsive. And the way the the book goes between this dreamlike world and almost this mystery plot of what happened to Lafayette's brother and why is Lafayette obsessed. 
Uh, well, I even the breadcrumbs in between the chapters, he straight up Alan Moore proses it with articles and stuff, right? And I didn't really, I was more dismissive of those the first and second time, but this third time I was like, I need to read all these articles. I need to look at this map. Where are they going up and down the Hudson? I know this part of the country. And t- honestly, that gimmick, I'm a sucker for accurate period pieces, be it Mad Men or something else, right? And so to see something that is so hyper-specific to a part of the country that is very well-researched from an era, that too was another gimmick that just hooked me because I'm I'm from this part of the country. I've been spending my years here. Can we, can we, we should probably talk a little bit about the mermaid, I think, because she is, she is central. Without the mermaid, there is no, <laughs> there is no book. And as far as mermaids go, she's much more faithful to the mythical incarnation of mermaids where they're essentially sirens. They sing to you, they lure men to the deep and they usually just keep them prisoner there or they devour them. And and that's uh, a spoiler alert. That's essentially what, what this mermaid is doing. And when we when we first meet her, she's obviously wounded, but she's also infantilized where Sailor Twain is reading stories to her. And there's a Scheherazade. I mean, he references uh, Thousand and One Arabian Nights. I, I love that you caught that the first time because I think I only caught it this time, the Arabian Nights reference. I just cast it. So, uh, yeah, yeah. He, I mean, he tries to keep her interest by by telling her stories, fables that she's really, really into. And when we, of course, when we see the mermaid at the end, she's this really angry, vengeful monster. So there is this flip in her character where she's almost. It was all a con. She just wanted one thing. So yeah, so I'm curious, actually, how do you read her? Is she conning him from the beginning? Or does she really feel like this guy can unlock her heart? And it's not not a con. She knows, be it the Little Mermaid story or this one, the only way out is through genuine love. And she's probably tried other things over the years. You discover all the people that she's hypnotized and sirened over the years under the sea. And I think she decides to give it a good old honest effort with this man who clearly doesn't have the same motivations. It's not that he's immune. But again, to his character development, he has something hurting or broken in him, and she chooses not to take advantage of it. She sees that he's just being a kind man, and he goes as far as asking, please don't sing to me. I I got my own shit. I will help you. And I think she decides to play the long con because that's the only way to win the game, to unlock her heart. But when push comes to shove at the end of the book, she makes the call. She makes the call. That helps her and nobody else. And and again, I think she loses as a result. Well, you, well say, everyone loses. you say long con. So that implies that she's, you know, being dishonest from the beginning. And there's, I don't think there's any way to definitively. No, I think, I, no, no, what I'm saying. So yeah, I probably, by the end of the book, when she realizes they're at the end game, she's got to do what she's got to do. She wanted to try to get him to honestly do it the right way. And he doesn't. At that point, that's the snap in her where she's like, fuck it. I got I got to get mine. I got to get this done right. I don't care anymore about people again. Yeah. I thought I could with this guy, but he clearly couldn't do it for me either. Can we talk know. about those last few pages where he is? So basically, it's supposed to be a true love, but they go to this chest and this heart rises. It's almost like a Disney imagery. So in this situation, the heart is rising and it looks like things are going to work. But then Sailor Twain And then it breaks. Uh, yes. Yeah. And there's a couple of things in the panels as they're journeying to this chest where her heart is. That was curious for me. I don't know if you have the book in front of you, Roman, yeah. but I'm, like 336, the first panel, they're journeying to the chest 
And there's a strange panel where it almost looks like Sailor Twain is groping her. I mean, his hand is like definitely. Yeah, I, I saw that the third time around. I was like, whoa. Yeah. And, so, so, and, and, and to be clear, look at how she's looking at him in that right. moment. Like, what the fuck, dude? Right. That's her, that's her expression on his face. And there's this quick kiss. And then she's like looking around like. Okay, almost impatiently, like like fine here. So I've waited so long. The look on her face when she says I've waited so long is and the panel above it. She goes from and I, you're this is the approaching of the moment. Everything up until this moment, she's like he's a good guy, he's helping me just to help me. And in the lead up to the moment, actually 333, she looks at him with an evil look as well. She's like let's see where this goes. But then lust takes over from him at 336. Right. And at that moment, at that moment, that's where I think things break. Yeah. So my reading there is that is fundamentally what's motivating him. Because Sailor Twain is is almost prudish. He doesn't have a lot of experience with women. So it's almost like his guise of being nice was just because he's just too scared to make an explicit move until this moment. And that's when you see, okay... A lot of what is motivating Sailor Twain is that he's lustful. Well, she thinks it's love and it's lust. And page 339, palm, 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 the heartbeat, the heartbeat, the heartbeat. And then he starts to have flashbacks to his wife yes. and second guests. And you jump to Lafayette, which is interesting seeing another thing happening in parallel of Lafayette getting his seventh love and truly falling for the author which another interesting character, which we probably won't have time to talk about. But and then you go into straight up, not flashback mode, but envisioning his wife on her way to California, leaving him, walking out to sea. And then he looks at the heart of the mermaid and he thinks of his wife yeah. and he realizes he's done something wrong. He shouldn't be here. And that's the moment the heart breaks. And I don't know what that means from the mythology and the mechanics of the book. Does that mean her heart is broken? She can never be saved. And she's like, now I'm vengeful and angry. And then there's people sleeping under the sea. I'm guessing that's Lafayette, right? Like, I don't know what that is. Or is that Lafayette is having his seventh love and that breaks something as well? Maybe it's a combination, right? I mean, because the Lafayette breaks a spell when he has a seventh love, which he gets, so that way out for the mermaid is gone. And then, of course, the, the disappointment, I guess she had invested in Sailor Twain. So when you invest in a relationship and it doesn't pan out, and sometimes it's just incredibly frustrating when everything that you had hoped and dreamed- And you turn into an angry sea monster and just start smashing things. Exactly. I mean, we've all been there. Yeah, so I'm glad we talked through that because I was curious about that sequence of events because a lot's happening in those last few pages, panels, really, in the lead up. And from that point on- it turns into, and again, to me, this is not a dig. It turns into the obligatory falling action, the final set piece, the final battle at sea, the CGI set piece where the soul splits. And it's a good old time for me. And, and just to jump forward, sorry to ruin it for people, but like, I, I, I love the battle with himself. It's confusing, but it's great. And I love that on page 374, they show that He's popping, and that's clearly he's an apparition now. And then even in the the epilogue, where you come back to the, the beginning of the book, where he's talking to the author, and they reveal that his soul has is broken. This is the broken piece of a man. He never resumed himself. Yeah. 
Um, so I, actually, I do have a question for you there. And I don't think this is something that Mark Siegel, the, the author, resolves. And actually, I think this is something that he probably did need to resolve. But what are the implications? Inten- intentionally. Split? I think he didn't resolve it intentionally. Well, what, are, what are the implications of being split? What does that mean? I don't know. And I don't need to be literal about it. It's, again, what the one of the last books we read, it's, I think it's a Rorschach test. It's not necessarily the implications of being split, but well, again, I don't. We can get into the literal discussion of what are the implications of having your head no, in no, your no, heart I, and your foot split. But I was just curious if I was missing something because I don't. I don't know either. Well, I mean, the one thing I just noticed—not <laughs> the fourth time reading it—but as we're talking, looking at specific panels with a critical eye, something I completely missed. So his soul is split. You discover that he's an apparition on the earth, and the author walks to the water, and she sees his hat, which means the other half of him is in the water, which is nuts. 397. So 396? Oh shit, he's a ghost. 397. There's the other half of him. Are you sh- Okay, so I thought it was that he cuz he has a hat as a ghost. So I, I assumed that it was just the ghost form of him returning to the water to either make himself whole underwater or to be with the mermaid underwater. That um, could be it, but when he's fighting himself, both sides of him have a, have a hat. They have, again, have a hat, that's why, it. yeah. that Yeah, see, that was the one thing I'm always thinking about. Does, should this be explained? Should this not be explained? Is there, no, you know, what, no, I love I love things left unsaid. I don't want to know what's in the mystery box, Ryan. I, I want to feel differently about it every time I read it uh, based on how I view the world. You need to you need to like toss out a few. Here's why. Here's why for me I wanted that aspect explained because I don't know why I should give a shit that somebody's been split. If I don't know why it's important or how it impacts you in some way, I'm like, all right, well, there's two of you now. I guess that's a problem. So 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 I kind of it never. Was, it wasn't for Jamie Madrox. So yeah, <laughs> he's dead, right? Oh, sorry, different know. conversation. <laughs> um, no mutants are dead, buddy. No, yeah, so so if for me, it was because I didn't know what the implication was. It was hard for me to get emotionally invested. So when this thing happened, oh, you split. This is supposed to be this huge, devastating moment, or, or it's supposed to be an impactful moment. But because I didn't know the implications of it, it didn't have an impact for me. And that's why it's not because I needed to know. It's I needed to feel something. I can't help that you have no feelings. I that, have that, no, that yeah. no, no, it's like if that ha- if your soul was split, if every 20 seconds you popped into a black wisp of smoke, <laughs> he clearly, with the beginning of the, the prologue and the epilogue, he clearly is living a shitty life. I you mean, know? right. But is that because he split? Is that because, I mean, like, again, what does it cost you if you split? What does it cost you if you lose this aspect of this piece of yourself? I mean, it's not something that I need like three pages on, but it's just like one quick explanation of just like, yeah, it gives you, it makes you really depressed or something. But he is you- depressed. This whole book is depressing. <laughs> so if he's already depressed and who gives a shit if he gets split or not. It's just like, okay, and now you're missed. But you can, you're not always missed. Sometimes you can be solid. In fact, now you're a superhero. It's it's a metaphor for having a broken soul, I think. I could be uh, wrong. Okay, I mean, but and to me that that didn't need to be explained. <laughs> it it sucks, sucks to be you. Poof. Okay, I've, so I, maybe that's why though, because you've already interpreted it as his soul is broken, and for me, I'm sitting there being like, "All right, now you got a ghost twin." So I think, <laughs> and obviously, you're going to have. A, you're going to have a different emotional reaction depending on you are now only half a man versus you've got smoke buddies. So we don't have that much time left, but I, I do want to give a plug for uh, the name of the author. 
I thought she was a fantastic addition to the story. If there is a third or fourth strong character after Sailor Twain, after Lafayette, after The Mermaid, it's the writer. And what I love about her, not only the split that, one, you're hinting at this woman, this, God, I hate to use the term, like this J.K. Rowling's type figure that the entire society is enamored with, that people are lining up for blocks around, and then showing the period. There's literally a joke about what would you think if I was a woman? Ha ha ha. I would never have read your book. Ha ha ha. Women can't write. And, but all of her writings that Sailor Twain is reading between her and Lafayette and her knowledge and her explaining of the mermaid universe, I, it made the book stronger. It, it was almost like she wasn't just an explainer character. And, and the fact that she shows up at the, the epilogue and the prologue and, she is part of the reason that Lafayette can resist, etc. It, it made for a strong fourth addition to the cast. And the other thing about the casting is the four main characters, if these are the four main characters, they all interact with each other, but they never interact as an ensemble. And you could like draw a grid of how they interact. Everyone interacts with each other, but no one interacts together, so to speak. And I, I thought that was really well done. I do like the the author character. I don't think she left as strong an impression on me as she did on you, but she was actually figured into the action, right? I mean, initially, she's just there to provide exposition on mermaids and how they work, but she actually plays a central role in the mystery. There's like a mini subplot when she's revealed, everyone assumes she's a male and then gasp she's a it's a it's a woman which i'm actually that one that one you see coming but even once that happens there's fallout which i thought was neat that seagull acknowledges and dramatizes and then of course towards the end she's like the key to lafayette's i guess not being freedom, suckered freedom. by the mermaid yeah, yeah. <laughs> aka not being suckered by the mermaid <laughs> i wish there were more comics like this i again like we've read a lot of things that are not superheroes but you don't see things that like take a lot of swings and it's this is just weird and meandering and spooky and i don't know man this is the weird and spooky i like with beautiful mermaids well speaking of weird and vaguely spooky you want to know what we're reading next week i was just gonna ask oh my god so next week we're gonna be reading satoshi Kon's opus if you are familiar with Satoshi Kon, it's probably because of his anime films like Perfect Blue and Paprika. I think Paprika actually was an inspiration for the Chris Nolan film Inception. And one thing that Kon is really interested in is the process of creation and dreaming and how that often influences reality. And so Opus was his last comics work before he became a film director. And it is weird. It is eerie, and it gets progressively darker as well. And but does it have mermaids? It doesn't have mermaids, but it is a bit of a mindfuck. And Robin, I can't wait to talk to you about this mindfuck. Mindfucks all the time, only on Quarantine Comics. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please be sure to subscribe, share with a friend, and leave us a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your fine podcasts. Got a suggestion? Shoot us a note. QTDcomics at gmail.com. We give you a social media handle, but we're old, and frankly, that feels like too much work. I'm Roman Segel. And I am and have always been Ryan Joe. 